Father, we stand before you in humility at your greatness and your glory and your love for us. You're not just this great, glorious, awesome being somewhere in the universe. You are a God who loves us intimately too. And that just blows our minds. And we just say thank you. We receive that in Jesus' name today. Amen. Amen. Why don't you guys have a seat? I have a question before we get started this morning. Is there anyone here this morning who is planning on getting baptized today? Okay. All right. All right. Good. All right. Elizabeth. Okay. All right. We got one. That's all we need. Heat the tub. I'm not even kidding. We got a, we got a big horse trough outside. We're going to heat it up so she doesn't get hypothermia and we're, we're good to go. Okay, I just want to make sure our volunteers were not filling the tub in vain. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 14 and pick up our text from last week, starting in verse 26. You know, it was uh, Vance Havner who said, The task of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I'm down with that. Um, George Whitfield uh, said, It's a poor sermon that gives no offense, that neither makes the hearer displeased with himself nor with the preacher. So apparently my job is to make you displeased with me too. So I'm going to strive for that. How's that for an introduction this morning? <laughs> the, title, the title of this morning's sermon is Contribute to the Body. So let's talk about that word, contribute. It means to give or supply in common with others to give to a common fund or to a common purpose. The root word there is tribute, and that's something that is voluntarily given as due or as something deserved, especially a gift of service showing respect or gratitude or affection. Synonyms include, just to be thorough, right? I want to be thorough. Pitch in, confer, endow, render, provide, lavish, aid, Assist, benefit, help, dispense, meet out, offer, sacrifice. We're talking about contributing to the body of Christ, and I don't think that most people in the church today know what that word actually means, a concept actually means, because we live in a culture that's largely comprised of consumers. And without realizing it, sometimes the church adopts their mindset and their practices. I don't know that it's intentional. I think it's just a byproduct of living in that culture. But generally speaking, people don't give anything unless they're expecting something in return. If that sounds overly pessimistic to you, you need to leave the house more. My observation is that our pagan culture has so influenced the church that our thinking is more like the world than the word more shaped by the media and pop culture than by the mind of God revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And the result is that America's churches are filled with self-centered narcissistic consumers who shop and hop and going from church to church based on what they can get. If that's you, I'm glad you're here today. I'm glad you're here. Because in the midst of God's goodness and divine providence, you're right where you're supposed to be. And, and I just want to say I'm, I'm delighted. I'm, I'm so glad that with, with all the active volunteers that we have at Emmaus Road, we have, we have a great volunteer base here. And doing everything from, I don't know if you know this, there's a, there's a team of people that rotate week by week throughout the month that come in here 
and clean up all the candy and popcorn and mop these floors and disinfect and make this space clean for us every Sunday morning at 530. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm so glad for that. I'm so grateful. There's a, there's a team that keeps our kids during service and loves them and not just managing their, them like, like managed chaos, but really investing in them and giving them the word of God every week. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. But that's still just a very small percentage of our church body. And, and, and this, that's something we need to work at, quite honestly, something we need to grow. Uh, simply put, God did not design his body to be a thing where only professionals, ministers and pastors, come in and labor and pour out, and everybody else is supposed to just passively receive and consume. That's not the design of the body of Christ. That's a, that's a very American idea and, and a bad one at that. But, but instead, the church is a living organism like your own body with many interconnected parts, all of which serve and support the whole being. And, and so the, the term body with reference to the church, I don't know if you know this, in the New Testament occurs 40 times. We're, we're a body. We're one body. Uh, Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, described it as uh, being many members, yet one body. And then he, and then he tags this, this phrase. He says, devoted to one another. Devoted to one another. I don't know that even as a pastor that I, I think like that during the week. You know, by Thursday, I'm like, am I devoted to, to them, I, I, I want to want to be more devoted. It's like that, just that, even that that concept. One member can't say to any of the others, "I don't need you." We read that in chapter twelve. So, so with this image of the body in mind, the whole, the, the devotion that we're supposed to have for one another, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes concerning the need for all the parts and all the members to be engaged and active in building up the body of Christ. We'll start in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26 to 33. And if, you, if you're using the version Bible app, by the way, you can click on the main menu, the, the little hamburger menu there, Click events and look for Emmaus Road Church. My sermon notes are there if you want to follow along. Some people just, they comprehend better when they're reading and listening. So feel free to do that. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So go back to 26. What, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So the first thing we have to acknowledge here is the mutuality with which the body operates. And the clear inference in verse 26 is that everybody 
that shows up on Sunday participates in some way. Everyone comes to the corporate worship gathering with an encouraging word for somebody or a a desire to pray over someone who's hurting or a word from the Lord or a word from the word about a situation in someone's life or or a song to sing or an amen to shout. There we go. Okay, thank you. Make sure you guys are tracking with me. We're still dealing with the concept or, or, of order. There's this element here of order versus chaos in the church. I don't know if you've seen it. And, and Paul's addressed that, and we've talked about that. But, but most people, this is really inter- interesting to me, without really thinking about it, um, I think when given the opportunity, you get two columns here, and you say, okay, this is order, this is chaos. Where does freedom belong? Order or chaos? Most people will put it under chaos. That's freedom. You can do whatever I want. Be loud in church, dance. I'm wearing my unitard this week. I've got my streamer. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> you just wait. Wait till next Sunday. Um, <laughs> when, you put, when you put freedom under chaos, you're wrong 100% of the time. Because freedom actually thrives under the column of order, under the concept of order. And it actually wilts under chaos. This is true in in towns and cities and nations, just as it is in homes and in churches. And this relates to what we talked about last week with individuals in the church wanting to utilize their non-corporate gifts in a corporate setting. And we use the word corporate. Corporate is uh, corpus. And it comes from, that's the Latin word for body. Okay, and so this this idea that there are gifts that are to be used in the context of the body gathered, um, that those are specific gifts. Uh, I was thinking about this this week. I remembered back in my campus ministry days, I had a pastor, an Assemblies of God pastor friend in town, and he called me and he said, I need you to lead worship for me for two weeks. I had to fire my worship guy. I was like, "Okay, all right, I'll step in. Um, I said, I, I don't want to rehearse any teams. I just, I'll just bring my guitar and I'll just lead worship. And it, it, that'd be easier. And he's like, cool, thank you. And so I show up Sunday morning and uh, we're just kind of getting everything set up and, and the service starts and I'm, I'm, in, I'm into the second song, right? That, that two song opening set and I'm in the second song. And, and then there's this lady <laughs> and she's right on the front row. And, and what the, 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 the people who, caring for the sanctuary, you know, prior to the church service, very smartly took a sheet and put it over the drum set. As, a, as an indicator, like, nobody's going to play that today. Didn't stop her. I'm in the middle of that second song. I'm just playing along. And she just decides in that moment, what we need is percussion. So she came on up. She came on up the stairs to the stage, and she pulled that sheet off that drum set, and she sat down and began to play. Well, I say play. It wasn't really playing. She didn't know how to play the drums. Uh, uh, she, she, it, it wasn't working out, is what I'm trying to say. And we were not a good worship team that morning, mostly because we hadn't practiced and also because she didn't know how to play drums. But this is what Paul means by orderly worship. So, so what happened? Just so you know what, what happened. I got through the song barely, and stopped it sooner than I had intended. And uh, the, one of the associate pastors came up to do the announcements. And as he did, I went down to the lead pastor and I just said, you've got two choices right now. Make one. 
you pull her down and tell her to sit down and don't touch the drum set again, or I will stop in the middle of the next song and I will tell her in front of everybody, you choose. And he went right over and got her and said, you need to sit down right now. I was like, thank you. I was just like, that's not freedom. That's not worship. That's not helping anybody come into the presence of God. That's chaos. That's chaos. Freedom in our worship withers under chaos and it flourishes under order. When our worship, our worship teams get together in the middle of the week, you know what they do? They practice. So how are we going to do this song? Do we want to go back and pick up that chorus again at the end? What are we doing? Everybody's on the same page. Everybody's understanding where this is going and the transitions. And, and, it, and, it, and what it does for us when we gather is it gives us freedom in our worship. Right? It's beautiful. The right and necessary boundaries in corporate worship actually enhance the various gifts, whereas chaos in corporate worship degrades them. That's what Paul's getting at here. And so in verse 27, he goes on, he says, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and, not, and to God. So, so remember last week, if you were here, we talked at length about, um, uh, we talked about the priority of building up the body when we're in a corporate worship environment. The principle does not exclude tongues though there are some guidelines for that, that use of that gift. And, and he says, at most, two or three speakers with interpretation. Now, I got to tell you, I don't know the procedure on this. Um, whether, um, whether people who had the gift of tongues would show up to church in faith, trusting someone was going to be there to interpret, or whether they would collaborate beforehand and say, hey, look, God's given me a word in, in a tongue for Sunday. Will you... In- interpret that. And I, I don't know how that all worked in the early church, but these, these were the parameters for people with these gifts to be able to contribute. There's our word again, contribute to the body of Christ. He says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another who's sitting there, let the first be silent. So the, so the early church would hear from two or three prophets when they were gathered on the Lord's day. But, but what I hope that you're seeing here is the expectation of the corporate gathering that it should be orderly. It should be orderly. And also that the members of the body should come to that gathering with the expectation of ministering to others and giving of themselves. That's the, that's the expectation that Paul has underneath all of this. You're coming to contribute, not to consume. Verse 31, he says, For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. Well, the first part of verse 31 is a con- I don't know if you've heard this. this so I've got to address this, because when there's error in the church and it's really prominent, it's, it's good for a pastor to stop and say, avoid this, okay? And there's this whole movement. Um, well, let me say this first. A text without its context, is a pretext for a proof text. You, you, you following me? When you take a sentence or a fragment of a sentence out of its context, you've created an excuse to make it say something that it doesn't mean. And, and this phrase here in, in, verse, um, in verse 31, uh, you can all prophesy, stop, is taken 
out of the context of that verse and used by um, a, a group of people who identify as the New Apostolic Reformation, this idea that there are modern day apostles and prophets and that they are speaking God's word that has the same authority as what the apostles and prophets spoke in the Bible. And they're wrong. That's right. They, they are dead wrong. And they, and, they, and they say this, they take this phrase out of this verse and say, you can all, see, the Bible says you can all prophesy. That's not what it says. That's not what it says. It says, for you can all prophesy one by one, meaning everybody who has the gift of prophecy can go in order one by one and be orderly in the use of their gifts. It doesn't mean everybody in the church has the gift of prophecy. And what have we seen? Well, go, go back to chapter 12 and 13. This is all over the place. God has given everybody in the body different gifts for the building up of the body. He didn't give everybody one same gift. It just blows my mind. It's like, read the letter. Read it. Read it. I'm always amazed at how easily Satan twists God's word. And, and I'm, I'm equally amazed at how quickly so many Christians accept that twisting. I just read it in its context. Verse, verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This then is the underlying foundational truth of the ent this entire section of 1 Corinthians with all the charis, all the, the grace of God, and all the charismata, all the gifts of God coming together in a corporate worship environment, and in nothing that takes place in the church, uh, when the, the church is gathered, should confusion reign. It should never be a place where confusion reigns. How many times have we seen the word or the concept that things should be done orderly and with propriety? Because the church is not a circus for our entertainment. It's a weekly homecoming of God's people. And think about it like that. I get excited about Sunday because I don't see most of you during the week. Some of you I see. Some of you I avoid. Um, I'm just kidding. I, I, don't, I don't avoid any of you. But I, I, I get excited about Sundays because I know I'm going to see faces I haven't seen all week. And I know that my brothers and sisters are going to be in the room and we're going to rejoice together. And I look forward to our time together. This, this is a, it's a homecoming of God's adopted kids to be with him and with one another, to be fed the word and to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. I love that. You know, we're in a season of life right now. I was just thinking about this as I was saying that, sharing that with you. But, uh, you know, Abby's 15. She has her driver's permit. She still can't. She's not free. She's still on a leash. You know, she can't go far. But the boys, you know, they're gone all the time. And Ethan doesn't even live with us anymore. And Sunday afternoons are so sweet because all the kids come home and we share a meal. And sometimes other, other young adults come to and we love it. We just love it because it's just every Sunday afternoon, everybody's home is a homecoming. It's God's people and we just share a meal and we just enjoy each other. And I love it. That's what church is. That's what this is. Come to be fed the word of God and to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. So, so let's take a scene from, um, from the gospel of John to kind of drive this point home. Okay. Think about John 6, uh, verses 1 to 14, where Jesus fed the 5,000. I'm going to read some of the text, comment along the way, but I want to draw this out because I think this is a good, um, a, a good text to come alongside what we just read to make this point about the body of Christ. 
You read John 6, it says, After Jesus had gone away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, a large crowd was following him. And here's why. Here was their motive. Because they had seen the signs that he was doing on the sick. Okay. So so they'd seen all this healing, and now they're following him. And verse 3 says, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, that's a pretty major feast day on the calendar in Israel. The Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And lifting up his eyes and seeing this large crowd that was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where where are we going to buy some bread so that these people can eat? (laughs) What are you going to do, Philip? Nobody has any food. There are no grocery stores. There are no fast food places to pop into. And, and the crowd that's coming, what we're going to find out, is larger than the populations of most of the nearby villages. It's a huge crowd. So what is Jesus to do? This is a prime teaching moment. So Jesus asked the disciples to see if they've been paying attention so far. He knows what he intends to do, but this is a test for them. As an aside, those of us who are parents and grandparents, we should thank God for, by faith for moments like these where we don't know how things are going to work out. We should thank God for that because what happens is we can set an example for our children and grandchildren by praying and trusting God and inviting them into those moments of faith so that when God comes through, their faith is built up. Isn't that amazing to watch your kids go, oh, God provided. It's It's awesome. It is awesome. Test your children in this. Ask them in those moments, hey, what should we do, kids? What should we do about this? And when you begin to get the regular response from your children, we should pray and ask God to help us. Then you're doing well. You're doing well. Verse 6, Jesus said this to test him because he he himself already knew what he was going to do. So Philip answered and said, Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for this crowd, for everybody to get just a little bit. What are we going to do? Now, in the other gospel accounts of this incident, the disciples recommend Jesus, just send them away, Jesus. Just send them away. Let them fend for themselves. And and, and I got to say, this is all too often the way that the church responds. We punt the ball. We walk away from the predicament. It's not my problem. Or, or we throw some money at it. But Philip sees the enormity of the task here. It's too huge. It's too impossible. It would take six months wages just to give each person a morsel, much less feed them. Philip sees all the reasons why this is not going to work. And I got to confess, I do this often. It's the mark of a critical thinker who strategizes because I'm already five moves down the board. I'm already thinking about what is going to work and what's not going to work. And, and um, Jesus says to people like me, dude, just be here. Just deep breath, Sadie. <sighs> Exhale. Be here. Watch. Watch what I'm going to do. I got this. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, said, well, <laughs> there's this kid over here, and he's got five barley loaves and two fish, but what, what is that for so many? Well, that's not going to help us. Andrew doesn't understand either, but he trusts Jesus to know what's going on, and so he offers the kid with the lunchbox to Jesus, right? <laughs> 
And maybe he was just discouraged. Maybe he was being pessimistic. Maybe he was hopeful. Maybe he was daring Jesus to do something. We don't know. But Andrew gives Jesus the information to see what he's going to do. And, and then Jesus acts. In verse 10, Jesus said, okay, have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. But catch that. The men sat down. There were about 5,000 men. What's not counted here is all the women and children. It's likely that this crowd is between 15,000 and 20,000. It's not just 5,000. It's a, it's a huge crowd with wives and kids. Jesus took those loaves, verse 11, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated and also the fish so much, as much as they wanted. And, and, and you, you'll see... He, he took, so you see the text, it says, when he had given thanks, he, he broke the loaves and he gave thanks, right? That's, that's reminiscent of the Passover Seder later when he's with his disciples, right? Uh, th- there's an element of communion here in what's happening. We partake and we remember the sacrifice, the body broken for us, the, the blood poured out for us. And, and here the bread is broken as well and it feeds a multitude. And this, this miracle is speaking to the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. It's enough. It's enough. Jesus could have easily provided food without this little boy's lunch. You, you remember the temptation of Christ in the wilderness? And Satan says, if you're hungry, Jesus, just turn those stones into bread. Just turn the stones into bread. You can do that. Jesus could have done that here. He could have turned stones into bread. But God in history was choosing to work primarily through people. You think about some of the miracles of God, even in the Old Testament. You go back to the parting of the Red Sea. God parted the Red Sea, but he used Moses raising his staff. What, did you need Moses to raise his staff? Was it a magic staff? No, I, I can't part the Red Sea without Moses or the stick. I don't need that. But I'm going to use that. I'm going to use it. God doesn't just do all the work while we sit back and watch is what I'm trying to say. He, he expects us to do our part, to be faithful, to make a contribution. We're supposed to contribute. And here in John verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, it says, When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Well, gather up all the leftover fragments. Don't let anything be lost. And they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments of the ba- five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that was done, he said, they said, this indeed is the prophet who's come into the world. Twelve baskets. Where is twelve significant again in Bible? Oh, twelve tribes of Israel. Hmm. So God's a good provider for his people, is what he's saying. He's capable of supplying all our needs according to his riches and glory. I know that's somewhere in the Bible. And I've read that. Um, but he chooses to do it by involving us. And what we bring to the table, what we contribute. Jesus multiplies what we bring in faith to meet the needs of the people in his church and the people we minister to. And he delights to multiply when we give, when we contribute. But, but we have to contribute. Do you, do you understand? There's an element here of us engaging that's the first priority of this thing so so what about what about the inversion of that what happens when one member of the body withholds and doesn't contribute and and hoards and and doesn't want to doesn't want to let people play with their new shiny ball what what happens 
when that happens. Let's explore that briefly. Uh, I'm, I'm very fond of the writings of a Dr. Paul Brand, who was a pioneer. He was a pioneer in developing tendon transfer techniques in the human hand for those who had leprosy. This is a guy who went into leper colonies and ministered to lepers as a medical doctor. He, he trained at the uh, University College Hospital in London during the Second World War, later gained his surgical qualifications whilst working as a casualty surgeon during the London Blitz. Met his wife, Margaret, in medical school. She was also a surgeon. And one of his best-known books, co-written by Philip Yancey, is called Pain, The Gift Nobody Wants. <laughs> it's an excellent book. I highly recommend it to you. Dr. Brandt died July 8, 2003 at Swedish Hospital in Seattle. He lived here. And I want to read you just a small excerpt from his book, In the Likeness of God. He says this. At the Central Railway Station in Chennai, India, lay a beggar woman more pitiful than the others I had seen there. She had positioned herself alongside the stream of passengers hurrying to catch the trains. She was emaciated. Sunken cheeks, eyes, bony limbs, but paradoxically, a huge mass of plump skin, round and sleek like a sausage, was growing from her side. It lay beside her like a formless baby, connected to her by a broad bridge of skin. The woman had exposed her flank with its grotesque deformity to give her an advantage in the rivalry for pity. Though I saw her only briefly, I felt sure that the growth was a lipoma, a tumor of fat cells. It was part of her and yet not, as if some surgeon had carved out a hunk of fat from a 300-pound person, wrapped it in live skin, and sewed it onto this woman. She was starving. She feebly held up her spidery hands for alms, but her tumor was thriving, nearly equaling the weight of the rest of her body. It gleamed in the sun, exuding health, sucking the life from her. He goes on to say, a lipoma is a low-grade benign tumor. It derives from one single fat cell, skilled in its lazy role of storing fat that rebels against the leadership of the body and refuses to give up its reserves and resources. It accepts deposits, but it denies requests for withdrawals. And as that cell multiplies, daughter cells follow its lead, and a tumor grows like a fungus, filling in crevices, pressing against muscles and organs. He says, under the microscope, they seem composed of healthy fat cells, bulging with shiny oils. The cells function beautifully except for one flaw. They have become disloyal. In their activity, they disregard the needs of the body. We need to pause and look carefully at ourselves, he says. Christ's body needs all types of cells, fat cells, thin cells, rich cells, poor cells, simple and complex. But that body only needs loyal cells. And in the area of using resources, Jesus, our head, has many unsettling things to say. God, save us from being a cancer in his body. These are the words of a godly physician who understood incredibly well how important it is for God's people to be loyal, to be committed to the mission, to be fully bought into supporting the whole body, to prioritize contribution over hoarding, and, 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 to, and to prioritize generosity over selfishness. 
So don't miss this. If you are not obediently enacting what God wants for your life, or at the very least seeking it, there is a very real sense in which you are holding those in the body of Christ back. Because we are one. We are one. Now, that sounds overly harsh, but consider that the body cannot go forward in the way Christ designed it to if one part or, or, or several parts of the body are in rebellion against his agenda or, or just apathetic towards it. The body can't do what the body's supposed to do in that situation. The purpose of the grace that he gives us is to manifest his presence in and through us to the world around us. And we talk about generosity and generously giving of our time, talent, treasure, and touch. And the purpose of all of that is that the body builds itself up in love. That's the purpose. Grace is given. Gifts have been given. The spirit has been given. All for the building up of the body of Christ. You and I are not called to build up every local church in Stanwood or every church in Snohomish County or all around the world. If you're here and this is your church home, then this is the local expression of Christ's body that you are called to build up as a first priority. I realize there are younger believers in the room who are new to the faith. Maybe they don't know uh, what I'm about to say. I wanted to say to you, there's grace for you when there's a willing heart. Okay, there's grace when your heart is willing to receive. And also there's some of you who may be in a season of healing from hurts, even wounds inflicted by other people in the body of Christ. There's grace for you to heal and then re-engage when you have healed up. But then there are plenty of people here who've been in the faith for a while and know, know it perfectly well. Heed this now. Listen, if you're a Christ follower and there's no ministry happening in your life unto others at Emmaus Road Church, no engagement at the Great Commission, no exploration or development of your gifts, no inquiry as to how you can give and serve and grow, then you are in disobedience and you are hindering what God wants to do here. I say that in love, truly. So you have a choice. You have a choice. You can get defensive about it and sulk. And I've been there. I am one of the best sulkers. Just ask my wife, she'll tell you. You can, you can get defensive and sulk, or you can be humble and receive grace and move forward. There's no third option. There's no third option. And I'll just say it again so that we both know everyone's had a chance to hear these words and take them to heart. If your attitude is, not me, I'm not doing it, somebody else will do it. And if, and if I'm talking about, I'm talking about an ingrained, stubborn heart attitude because there's a difference between the person who doesn't know what is the right thing to do, but upon being told is, is glad to engage versus the person who knows and continues to refuse, right? If you just want to sit in a seat and soak up the word and never take action and never explore ministry, you are in the wrong church. And it all comes down to either faith or fear, which one determines how you live and what you're becoming by the grace of God. Because faith gives itself away with open hands. It lets time and energy and resources just flow towards the kingdom and towards the things that matter most for eternity. Faith gives it away. Fear hoards. Fear grasps. Fear holds on desperately to the illusion of security. 
Fear worries. What's going to happen? What's going to happen if I don't hold on to my stuff? That's fear. But faith recognizes that there's no such thing as ownership. Is that a new concept for you? There's, you don't own anything. If you're a born-again, blood-bought, saved Christian, you are a steward, and everything that you have is a stewardship. You don't own any of it. It belongs to God. What are you doing with that stewardship? Take a mental inventory of all the things that you call yours. Just, just even, if you, even if you just need to close your eyes to do that, think, there's the house, there's the car or cars, our marriage, the kids, the bank account, money, boats, RVs, furniture, appliances, pets, stuff. You get down the list, you're thinking about your time, your abilities, the hobbies you enjoy, all of your earthly belongings. And as you're looking at all those things, you're picturing all those things in, on the screen of your mind. Let the screen just go black and then the words appear on the screen, all in bold, right up there on the screen. None of it belongs to you. None of it. None of it. You are a steward of God's resources. You are called to contribute to the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I'll just say this. The hour is late. The hour is late. And the days are rapidly growing dark as we see the world changing around us. Every one of you knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's overwhelming. We just, but when we prayed at 9 a.m. this morning, those who were here early for prayer, we prayed about this. We were, we're just overwhelmed. Everybody's overwhelmed at how rapidly things are changing in our world. It, 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 it just it weighs heavy on us. It weighs heavy. It's all around us. We can't escape it. But I think this could be the church's finest hour. I think this could be the hour when we shine the brightest. We're outnumbered by the sheer vitriol and hatred of many, and that's overwhelming. But we can continue to love men, women, boys, and girls with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can engage with the mission of Jesus Christ. We can obey his great commission until the very last soul is saved or our last breath is spent and we hear the trumpet of God calling us home. And I'll tell you, I, I long for that. I long to hear that sound. But until we do, we're on mission with Jesus. Will you commit your heart to be on mission for Jesus at Emmaus Road? Will you resolve in your heart to strive for generosity with your time, talent, treasure, and touch? Will you contribute your gifts, talents, and abilities for the building up of the body of Christ? Right now, I'm asking you to step through the fear that every one of us is experiencing and to choose obedience and to choose sacrifice instead of the illusion of security. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again in abject humility. We know that we don't have the strength, the power, the wherewithal to make these things happen, even in our own minds, even in our own hearts. We're far too weak to do that. And so we call out to you for a fresh filling of your spirit that you would, you would fall upon us again. You would minister to your church. You would fill us with, with faith and strength and love for the lost, Lord. That the love for the lost and our love for you and the obedience that flows out of that love would be the thing that would dictate how we spend our resources in these days. And we would recognize that there are only 
so many days left on your calendar that the church can be effective in the world. And, and then at some point, you're going to take us out of the world. And we want, to, we want to use up every ounce of grace that you've allocated for us to use in the mission that you call us to. So give us grace, Lord. Direct our steps. And we just thank you in Jesus' name.